On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas. Hey there, howdy. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we appreciate you hanging out on the other side of Texas and for telling your friends that you... Hang out on the other side of Texas. The Leeson vacation continues, and uh, we are not here live. These This program that you're listening to here on a Wednesday has been pre-recorded, but I'm sitting here before we leave town. We're going to go back in time, and I'm sitting here with little John Shepard Leeson. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about where we are and what we're doing as you get ready for some, uh, w- hold on one second. Hold on. You can't oh, go, you can't, yeah. you, uh, well, you can't go quite yet. Coming up, we have Ross Ramsey, like you've not heard Ross Ramsey before, executive editor of the Texas Tribune. One of the, if not the most listened to voices in Texas is going to describe how he got to where he is and a little bio with Ross Ramsey, a little special for you there coming up. And we also have a continued series with Brandon Roddinghouse, University of Houston, uh, part three of our Texas Legislature 101 that we put together. You can find more about that on OtherSideOfTexas.com. And then uh, pre-record, well, we did this interview earlier, got a lot of feedback on it. Helena Bottomiller-Evich of Politico's ag team. She's a senior ag writer there, or ag reporter at Politico, that coming up for you as well. But first, the main event, he is John Shepard Leeson. But what do we call you, John Shepard Leeson? What's your real name? Or what what name do we call you by? Jack. Jack. Because Jack is a form of John in what language? In um is it Spanish? Yeah. It's no, written. it's not. No. It's French. Jacques. Jacques. You're you're a Frenchy boy. Are you a Frenchy boy? Yes. Okay, tell them where by the time they listen to this, where are we gonna be? At Olio! Okay, that was loud. We're gonna have to go in and edit that. We're gonna be at Olio Ranch, right? And what what are your favorite parts about Olio? Um, at we get to do fishing rods, and what do we catch with fishing rods? Bears, fish, fish. Okay, and what what are your other favorite parts? Our, my other favorite part is when we're gonna get a boat and the cabin and. When Sam are gonna make some, are gonna make some, uh, are gonna make some. You can do this. Um, he, we're gonna make some tracks. Some tracks for what? Wait, 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 wait. Actually, we're gonna make some. Some obstacles for some little chickmunks. They right. look so cute. What's your least favorite part of Oleo? I bet I can guess 
your two least favorite parts? No, no TV and no video games. Because there's no electricity, right? Yes, I'm like so grrr. <laughs> there are no screens at Olio. The yeah, other like thing, daggummit. The, uh, the, <laughs> the thing that you also don't like is how long it takes to get there, right? Yep. How long does it take to get there? How many hours? Eight hours. Eight hours. Which is about how long you go to where? Um, school. To where? School. To school. It's going to take the whole day. Yeah. Because when we went to Papa and Sasis, it took that same time, and it's going to be not no time. Left. Bam! Okay. All right. So you can imagine what kind of fun we're going to be having there. Not good reviews there from John Shepard, like Rotten Tomatoes, like a uh, like a twenty three percent rating. But we're going to be having a great time making memories. Hey, uh, thank you for tuning in. Great program coming up. We'll start with Ross Ramsey. Move to Brandon Roddinghouse. Stay right here, other side of Texas, about ninety seconds, and uh, you get some good stuff. And no screams. Duh, duh, duh. No screens. No screens. Hey, go it. Stay right where you are here on the other side of Texas. When you're best friends with the founder of the Lubbock County Militia, you get your own radio show. It's the other side of Texas with Jay Leeson. I worked the rigs from three to midnight on the Corpus Christi Bay. I'd get off and drink till daylight. This week in our segment with Ross Ramsey, talk a little bit about Ross Ramsey and uh, hear about his life, uh, how he got to where he is, what's changed his thinking, or how his thinking hadn't changed. But he has been in Texas politics close to, are we at 40 years yet, Ross? No, I wouldn't say 40 years. That would be embarrassing. Okay. So 39 uh, for Ross (laughs) Ramsey in in Texas journalism, we'll say. Uh, you know, I've been in journalism since like '79, and really covering politics most of the time since '89. But I covered a bunch of races before that. Okay, so thirty or forty, take your pick. But still, Ross Ramsey knows a lot about Texas and has seen quite a bit. So let's start in El Paso. Uh, you grew up in El Paso. Yeah, I was born in Amarillo. We moved to Tulsa for a little bit, and then when I was eight, we moved to El Paso, and that's where they completed my rearing. What What took that route? What What was uh, your dad? What was mom or dad? What kind of business were they in? Uh, my dad was in finance. He worked for General Motors for a while, and that was a like you know a lot of big companies in those days. They transferred you every so often, and then he ended up uh, going to a bank in El Paso, and we put down roots there and that's where they my mom and dad lived until they passed away just a few years ago hmm. so you graduated from el paso what high school coronado coronado high school is there a coronado there too there's a coronado there too i think it out I, I don't know who was first i don't know if lubbock or, or el paso got there first yeah but they're both they're both notorious in their areas yeah, I went, and I, well, here's what's funny is I went and looked at a ranch last weekend, and the line you get is 
you know, Coronado marched through here. Like, Coronado zagged all the way across West Texas and hit every place he could. <laughs> I think he was lost. I, you know, I think if you had a map of that thing, it would look like the, um, I think it would look like a sprayed cockroach. <laughs> so, memories of El Paso. When are some boyhood memories that stick out to you? You know, just the same stuff most people have. I mean, you know, the stuff around your neighborhood and, you know, burning things and blowing things up and shooting things with slingshots and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. A Boy uh, Scout? Yeah. You know, the the biggest thing in El Paso that's changed from my uh, childhood to now is when I was growing up, Juarez was just another neighborhood. I mean, people from El Paso were in Mexico all the time, you know, Saturday shopping and all of that kind of stuff get your hair cut over there and do all of that kind of stuff. Um, and when I was in high school, you know, it was not uncommon for, you know, high school and college kids to, you know, play on a Friday or Saturday night in El Paso and then, you know, uh, continue the party over in Juarez. So it was, you know, that's that's sort of now out of bounds. It's, it is far more dangerous than it used to be, or it's at least perceived as far more dangerous than it used to be. And, you know, that that's a big change in the fabric of that city. How often do you get back to that city? Uh, quite a bit. I've still got family down there. So, you know, El Paso is still in my regular gambit. Um, you fly or drive? Usually a, I usually fly now. I've, been, I've, I've done that drive quite a number of times and set my own personal land speed records and all of that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a long ways off. It's more than halfway. If you drive from Houston to Los Angeles, El Paso is past the halfway mark. Yeah, El Paso is closer to L.A. than it is Galveston, right? Right. I believe. So tell me, let's do a rundown of your resume. What papers and what offices have you worked in? Uh, You know, so I started in radio. I worked at um, the campus radio station at what was then North Texas State. It's now uh, University of North Texas. Do you have any old tapes, Ross? I want to hear Probably the tapes. Somewhere, but, you're, but you're never going to see it, Mr. Lisa. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> Thanks for playing. <laughs> um, I don't know if I do or not, or if they, you know, have uh, turned to dust by now. But anyway, I worked at the campus station there, and in the commercial station in Denton, and then that led to a commercial station in Dallas, and worked there for about four years. I guess I did radio for six or seven years, and then. When radio was deregulated in the Reagan administration, a lot of stations, including the one I was working for, uh, no longer were required to do news, and so they let the news staffs go. So, in order to make the switch to print, I had to I had to get some clips together, and to do that, I freelanced for about three years for magazines and newspapers, you know, in Texas and nationally, and built up a pile of clips, and eventually got a job at the old Dallas Times Herald. But what what age are you then? I'm twenty six to probably twenty nine, something so like that. Late, you're, late 20s. So you're married, young children at that point. No kids. Okay. At that point. So, uh, so you know, built the built built that up and got a job at the Dallas Times Herald. But how that seems to me to be rather nerve wracking that you're in the same field, but in a different practice. And you got to land a gig. Uh, we're pretty lean years there, twenty six to twenty nine. Uh, they, you know, at first, yes, and you know, increasingly, increasingly not. You know, the 
publishing business wasn't terrible then, and you could get regular magazine work, and you know it wasn't um, it wasn't awful. Um, it was you know it was it took a while, and you know you build up a little bit of a book, and you have like anybody else in a seasonal or sales business, you have wet and dry periods. Um, yeah, but it was a it was a pretty good learning experience. Yeah, and it got me the clips that I needed, and I got into the newspaper. A fast intuition. Uh, how long does it take you to write a column? You're pumping out three a week. How long does it take you to write a column? From the you time you th- write it. No, from the time you start thinking about it until it's it's submitted. You know, most of the time, you know, you're you're sort of walking around in a state of thinking about it. So it's hard to put a start time on that. Okay. Well, you but hit once, the keyboard, and how once, long? Once I get to the, you know, I'm going to write about X. Um, you know, an hour at the most. I mean, 30 or 45 minutes most of the time. So that is somebody who writes from time to time. That's pretty incredible. And I can't imagine it just taking an hour. But here's what I want to ask you is, I know that... This is like asking somebody who builds kitchen cabinets and has built kitchen cabinets for 40 years. How do you do that so fast? It's just craft. Yeah. Just, you know, you just... I've done it a million times. You know, you kind of know... Like you do if you do anything else for a living, you kind of know what works and what doesn't work, and, you know, that's a trap, don't do it, and, you know, you just get better at it. So, Ross Ramsey, how much do you owe the acumen that you have in writing now, in that hour, and in processing those thoughts, and going and pumping out a piece, how much do you owe credit to that time where you were, you were just sprinting? to make it as a freelance and then to land a job was, is that something that you think about in urgency mode? Whenever you get into urgency mode, is that a time you reflect on from time to time? Now deadlines I got from, <laughs> you know, I, I, I went to college to be a musician and, you know, so you get a kind of, you know, if you know anybody who's, you know, a serious musician in middle and high school and college, they practice all the time, and whether they end up being a musician or not, they've got a discipline of sitting down and, you know, bearing down on something and concentrating. So credit part of it to that. And I started in radio, and, you know, for the four years or so that I worked in Dallas, I was mostly working in morning radio, and I would get to the office at about 3.45 or 4 in the morning, and by noon I had drunk a couple of pots of coffee and written 11 newscasts. And, you know, that'll teach you to write on deadline. You know, this is going to happen at 28 minutes after the hour. Give me the copy. And that's where I sort of got the, you find out whether you're a, you know, there's, that's a real binary. You're either a deadline person or you're not a deadline person. And I'm a deadline person. I found out I can write on deadline and, you know, with, you know, sort of the, the clock ticking. And the discipline of all of those years of practicing music and, the ability to write on deadline, you know, those were both, those have both been, you know, real important building blocks. Did you ever try to, go ahead. The other thing for any writer, I mean, you know, if you've got, you know, and I tell kids this, I mean, if, if, if you think you want to be a writer, my first question is always, do you read all the time? And if you don't read all the time, you probably don't want to be a writer. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. In the same way that if you've got a kid who says, I want to be a musician, and you say, who do you listen to and how much do you practice? If they say, I don't really listen to records and I don't practice that much, that's not going to be a musician. 
uh, writers read and write, and people who don't read and write aren't writers. Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, doing a little biography on Ross Ramsey here, other side of Texas. Thanks for tuning in. Do you ever try to barter your time at the station for coverage of uh, to play one of your hits as a musician? No. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> hey, what did Dad? So Dad's a banker. Uh, what did he think about you going to school to be a musician? Uh, they, my folks were very, very supportive. They were, you know, do what you want to do. And uh, in fact, I had a fantastic conversation with my dad one time when he was alive, where we went out on the back porch, and um, I said, "Tell me the things that you told me that you thought you wanted to stick, and I'll tell you what stuck." And it was a hilarious conversation because one, you know, I remember one of the things in that conversation was. I said, you know, one of the things that you told me was you do for a living what you would do if you didn't have to earn a living, sort of a version of, you know, do what you love. And I won't exactly quote him because we're on the radio, but he said, he thought about it for a minute, and he said, I think that's bull. <laughs> <laughs> really a conversation. But, yeah. but my folks were really, really supportive and um, really gave all of us, there's four of us, and really gave all of us deep self-confidence and... Um, you know, told us to you know to, you know you're gonna you're gonna take risks and you should enjoy yourself and you know it, it's a big game. Have fun. Uh, who do you take more after? You think your mother or father? Uh, I'm kind of a mama's boy. Okay, that's fair. So tell me, this do you still are you still in a band? Uh, no, I gave that up. I had a kid. Okay, <laughs> I had a kid. I had a career. <laughs> I gave it up. It sounds like me and fly fishing. Um, so what, there's a meteor. I don't know if you know this or not, but a meteor is about to hit your house. And you have the opportunity. It's going to hit in five minutes. You got to grab one book and one of your vinyl albums. What are you grabbing? I'm grabbing one book and a record? Yep. Um... I have the big fat book of George Orwell's essays that I would grab. And what record would I grab? Good Lord. Um, there's a Thelonious Monk album that made me fall in love with jazz. Hmm. I would grab that. All right. Jazz. The ever tame Ross Ranzi. Just sitting on his porch listening to some jazz. Uh, how would you describe yourself 30 years ago? I probably wouldn't. <laughs> um, I've, you know, I've always been... Um, Were you ever of, an ideologue, Ross? No. Okay. No, I've never been... I've never had that gear. I've sort of always been um, driven by curiosity and interest, and, you know, that turns out to be pretty good DNA for a journalist. Mm -hmm. Tell me, as a journalist... Either cover, covering politics or otherwise, favorite story you've covered? You know, I don't really have a favorite. I mean, you know, the first thing I did at the newspaper, and it was the thing that I sort of stumbled into as a freelancer and got the first that first newspaper job with the Dallas Times Herald was the beginnings of a lot of the Dallas real estate stuff that was at the middle of the savings and loan crisis in the 80s. Hmm. And, you know, it was a real lesson in 
I mean, the whole experience, it's probably, you know, that was a three or four year storyline. And it was a real experience in, you know, how to keep digging and keep going and how to follow something when you don't know at any given point where it's going to end up. You know, you're sort of following a storyline that you don't know where it's going to go. Um, and, you know, it was interesting because it was um, a lot of very powerful people and you had, you know, you found out what a journalist's access to that world is, what kind of information you can get, what kind of information you can't get, how to ferret things out. It was a real master's degree. So your least favorite? There's a million of those. I mean, there's always some, you know, when any, this is true in any job, I think, you know, you have to figure out what the, uh, what the worst day looks like. And, you know, the worst day in journalism is when there's nothing going on. It's, you know, uh, there are some stories that you don't like to cover just because they're awful stories and something terrible is happening to people and, you, you know, you're really just there as an observer and you can't really do anything about it. You know, an example of that would have been, I guess, the hostage standoff in Waco. Did you cover that? I did. Wow. So you saw the whole thing go down. Yeah, I was at the Houston Chronicle then, and it happened during a legislative session. And the way, you know, there were sort of three parts to that, or more than three parts, but, you know, there was the first thing that happened happened on a Sunday morning, and I got a call from an editor, and it was basically get in your car, drive north, call from the road, and we'll tell you what you're doing. And, you know, and that job at that time, you know, like the other reporters in that bureau, I had a, we called a go bag in my car, which was basically an overnight bag that was always in the car. So I just got up and, you know, walked to the car and took off and um, went up there and covered the first three days of that. And then it became, it went from the incident that started at the shooting between the ATF um, and the people in that compound to what amounted to a big standoff, kind of, you know, a siege without gunfire for a long time. And I went back to Austin to cover the session, so I covered the first three days of it, and then they had that long standoff, and then at the end I got a call, and it was go up to Waco and cover for the reporter who's been sort of covering this thing, She's going to go to this press conference with the FBI, blah, 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 and they've got tanks on the grounds up there. And that turned out to be the day that the federal government started punching holes in the compound with tanks and hmm. throwing in smoke bombs that ended up with burning down that compound and killing all those people. How hard is it on that scene? Just interrupt. How hard is it, Ross, to sit there and to watch this go on and to stay neutral to cover what's going on rather than saying why don't you guys stop i mean to, e to either direction well you're not in a place to do that and you know for one thing i mean that was you know we were you know there wasn't anybody to yell at they were a good distance away and it's not really your job you know you're there to describe what's going on you're there as an agent of your readers or viewers or um listeners and you know, your first job is to take down what's happening and communicate that to the people who aren't there. Here's what's going on in the world. That's, you know, on some level, that's what we do. Um, and you're, you know, a lot of the reflection about these kinds of things, and I think this is probably true of people in a lot of fields, you know, a lot of the reflection about that, what you're watching comes later. What you're watching while you're watching it, you're doing your job. 
you know, whether you're a journalist or doing something else, and you're focused on what you're doing and what you're supposed to be doing. And it, in a lot of cases like that, it's only later that you sit down and you go, holy cow, and kind of unpack it and, and, and deal with it. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, that was one of the toughest stories because you realize that, you know, that building has a bunch of people in it and it has a bunch of kids in it. And, you know, no matter how you feel about how everything got to that point, that was an awful day. And it was a terrible thing to watch and it was a terrible thing to, um, to have happen. Ross Ramsey here with us. I uh, want to, let's keep on this journalism train for just a second. Uh, somebody who you admire and I admire, Peggy Fikak, San Antonio Express News. You know, the San Antonio Express News laid off around 20 people a couple of weeks ago, one of them being Peggy Fikak, the dean of Texas journalism. I think you're second in that line, but she's first in that line. And, you know, the note I sent to Peggy was, Hey, on this day I learned nobody's immune. If it can happen to Peggy Fikak, it can happen to anybody. But I wonder, Ross, about you, when you and Evan Smith set out to start up this nonprofit to blaze a trail with the Texas Tribune, did you see a day like this emerging where you would see, you might see news agencies across the state, uh, newspaper rooms beginning to be cut in half? and quartered up the way that it is now? You know, that was already happening. I mean, you know, that was, um, you never know at the beginning of something like that how far it's going to go, and you, you don't know exactly what shape it's going to take, and there have been ebbs and flows. There have been moments when the papers beefed up a little bit and, you know, hired some people, and, you know, we're in the stage, as you say, now where, you know, some of them are cutting back. Um, but, you know, when I came to Austin, for the Dallas Times Herald in 1989, there were 90 or 95 credentialed journalists covering the Capitol. And when we started talking about the Tribune, that was under 30. And that was happening in state capitals all over the country. You know, Sacramento and Albany and Springfield, and you know, they were shrinking down. And part of the reason for that was that local papers were having to cut back, and it wasn't that they didn't care about state news it was that they cared about local news more and if you're going to have to cut you know that's how it that's how it happened so uh, we thought there was a room for something like what we wanted to do in state news and that's why we jumped into it but we didn't anticipate you know where the industry has gone now although i have to say a lot of the things that have been harmful to the industry you know the way advertising has worked the way you know a lot of disruption has worked in the media world um, you know, a lot of the things that are happening now um, were, were, you know, what's happening to the papers now is evident at that time. It just wasn't as, as, as virulent and what does, you know, hadn't done all the damage yet. Hmm. You know, we did a segment last week where I talked about some studies that have come out that public indebtedness, the indebtedness of local municipalities especially, there's a correlation between debt driving up and the demise of the local journalism in that community. Um, yeah, the theory, I, saw, I saw these articles. The theory there was that if you're not have not more heavily scrutinized, then you're more likely to borrow money yeah. if you're in government. Uh, 
what other facets do you think we'll begin to see as, and I'm going to define journalism here as somebody who's just trying to write a fair story about what's going on. But as we see those that are trying to write fair stories uh, where we're going to take profit over product, uh, what are some other costs, do you think? Well, think of it, you know, one way to think of it, you know, and you're thinking about government coverage is, you know, you have this yard and you've got a dog and it, the dog is supposed to bark when people come in your yard. And, you know, we're the dog. And if you're if you're watching over what your government is doing or what businesses are doing or whatever it is that we're covering, you know, our purpose is to let you know when something happens that you would be interested in knowing about. Um, if we're not there, if there's no dog to bark, you don't get a holler. Hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, that's really what we do. There's two things, you know, you can reduce journalism in some ways to two things. You know, we reveal things, hey, did you know blank, and we explain things. Hey, did you know how this worked? You know, there's a really great example of those two things working together right now this week in the Dallas Morning News, which is... I think five articles into a big investigative piece on how the state's Medicaid program and its Medicaid managed care program in particular is really screwed up. And, you know, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of people's lives. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff going on there. And if you don't have an organization or a press that is, um, asking questions about those things and devoting the time and the resources to investigate them, that's all your money. That's all public money, and it's all the public trust, and it's all things that we've decided as a community we're going to take care of. We're going to take care of these people, and we're going to spend as much money doing it. And if that's screwed up and nobody tells you it's screwed up, it just stays screwed up. There's a, there's a purpose for having a feedback loop, and journalism is a critical part of that feedback loop. Hmm. It's funny because the stories say, you know, the analogy I use was that people get in an algorithm loop and just reinforce what they already believed, and it, there's no contradictory evidence that's provided. Um, it's it's a dangerous place, I think. Uh, I know that we've we've asked some of your time here, so I want to just move to the last thing. Big baseball fan. Big baseball fan. How many stadiums you've been to? I, you know, the last time I checked, we were at 16 or 17. Is it on the bucket list to make them all? Yeah, that'd be great. I'm married to a big baseball fan. We'd, you know, we'd love to do that. Uh, what, tell me your wife's name. Becky. Becky. So who do you all root for? Uh, different teams. It's kind of tense sometimes. Um, she's an Astros fan. I'm a Cardinals fan. Okay. It was worse when they were in the same division or better, depending on you know how you want the relationship yeah. to go. <laughs> well, tell me this. <laughs> Should, uh, if your tension in your marriage is around a sport and not around something else, that's a pretty that's a pretty safe marriage. That's good living, buddy. That's good living. Right. Uh, should Pete Rose be reinstated? I'm going to ask you for a partisan take here. If the rule is you're not going to have cheaters in the hall, then Pete Rose should not be reinstated. Okay. Um, he but... was a great baseball player. Did he play fair? Uh, Did you call a guy a great baseball player who didn't play fair? Uh, I also don't like designated hitters, but you know that's another hour. So is that you saying that uh, that Pete should be reinstated? No, if you're not going to have cheaters in the hall, you don't have cheaters in the hall. Okay. And you know, right now, that's the rule. Okay. 
It seems to me that we have a couple, but I'm not the big baseball fan. (laughs) I'm not disagreeing with you either. No. I'm not saying everybody in there ought to stay. (laughs) Hey, so what's your big summer vacation? Last question. Uh, We're getting a college graduation in about a week. I think we're going to spend some time in the Pacific Northwest. All right. Well, Ross, I appreciate you taking time. I think that a lot of people, I hear all the time from, I won't drop names, but uh, this is what I hear a lot. You know, I don't get to listen to your show every day, but uh, I sure listen whenever Ross Ramsey's on. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate you taking time each week. Uh, Ross Ramsey at Ross Ramsey on Twitter. Uh, thank you so much, buddy. Always a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. All right. In part three of our Texas Legislature 101 series with Dr. Branding Roddinghouse at the University of Houston, we want to talk about the lieutenant governor in the Senate. Now, the Texas Legislature is bicameral uh, house and a Senate, and the Senate's oftentimes called the upper chamber and sometimes called by dirtier names. But the president (laughs) of... The Senate is the lieutenant governor. And Dr. Roddinghouse, I just want to kick off here. The lieutenant governor has to be, the office itself has to be a marquee of state government, Texas state government, as compared to other states because of the power involved in the role of lieutenant governor. Is that a correct assessment? That's very correct, yeah. That's... um the, the lieutenant governor's office came about because the goal of the Constitution of 1876, which is our current Constitution, tried to kind of bifurcate and, um, and diversify where executive power was. So the concern was that too much was being given to governors or chief executives. So the goal of the Constitution of 1876 was to give that power across multiple different offices. The office that rivals the governor in terms of power and authority is the lieutenant governor. This is ironic because lieutenant governors in other states don't have the same kinds of powers that they have in Texas. Bill Hobby, who was a former lieutenant governor, once joked that the only thing that lieutenant governors have on their agenda is to and ask about his or her health. <laughs> it's often referred to some, as a got a spare tire on government, right? You hope mm. you never have to use it, but you need it to be there in case you have to have oh. uh, it to be pumped up. Yeah, to ask um, the governor about his or her. Okay, got it. Kind of yeah, cut his out or her health. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the goal um, of Texas was to kind of diversify the um, was to diversify the executive power in the state. So. Lieutenant governors in Texas are historically powerful, but most states don't have quite that much power. Um, the lieutenant governor's office itself reaches back to colonial government um, when the goal was to basically create a governor and waiting to maintain public confidence in the continuity of government. New York State was the first to have a lieutenant governor uh, in 1777. That They were the first also to put the lieutenant governor in charge of their state senate. Um, Typically, lieutenant governors are kind of understudy to the governor. Only about four or five states in the union have a lieutenant governor that is as strong as 
Texas has. I created a little power index that basically is a statistical combination of the different powers that governors have or lieutenant governors have. Um, and only Washington and Vermont and a couple of other southern states have powerful lieutenant governors the way that Texas does. Hmm. So let's get into those powers that accentuate mm-hmm. the office. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, some of the powers um, are, are, are pretty profound. I mean, as you say, the first thing is that, you know, they're able to essentially run an entire chamber of the legislature. So in principle, they'd be able to um, have uh, their legislative outcomes um, as as firmly uh, rooted as possible. Um, they're a member of several um, you know, boards and commissions that are critical to the state. Um, so they're part of the, of the budget board, which we mentioned in, in uh, one of the prior segments, was an important factor in developing um, the state budget. They're also on the legislative redistricting board if uh, the state um, can't agree on um, on the legislative lines, and then the redistricting board is supposed to handle it, although lately the courts have been handling it, so uh, they haven't uh, kind of met that much. Um, so that's a lot of power that lieutenant governors have. Um, this gives them tremendous authority over a kind of political agenda as well as the legislative agenda that the state uh, the state engages in. Hmm. So let's uh, bring up one lieutenant governor for just a moment, and uh, somebody who I think has, has developed the well, got into that role and then really capitalized on that role later in his political career, and that's Coke Stevenson. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about, let's talk about Coke for just a moment, but then I should say Governor Stevenson for a moment, but uh, let's, yeah. let's talk about what he did in that office as well. Yeah, um, Stevenson was one of the first kind of modern lieutenant governors. Um, he's somebody who um, created that office um, as, and carved it out of stone. Lieutenant governors have always had several powers, at least by virtue of the Constitution. Those powers, though, are only as effective as the Senate will allow. So if the Senate wanted to, they could trim the powers of the lieutenant governor back. Um, to get back to our earlier question, in terms of being the legislative leader for the Senate, that means they have the power to be able to um, you know, decide where legislation goes. They can choose who goes on what committee. So the kind of reins they have over the legislative process in the Senate gives them a tremendous amount of power. And Stevenson was one of the first to really um, sort of organize that in a way that um, made some people unhappy. Um, part of the business of being a leader in this is making tough choices and either you're with leaders like that or you're against them and mm-hmm. that creates um, creates some friction um, he was one of the um, you know I mean, he's kind of famously known both when he was speaker as well as when he was uh, in the governor's mansion and lieutenant governor's office um, as being somebody who wanted to make the budget trim, keep taxes low or non-existent. He famously opposed wartime rationing because he said it was bad for the Texas economy. So he really developed um, an, 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 an wow. organization around the um, around the lieutenant governor's office that was pretty profound. Um, I'd throw, in addition to him in there, Alan Shivers, who was another conservative Democrat, what we called Redeemer Democrats. After the Civil War, Redeemer Democrats were those kind of really conservative Democrats who were reacting to some of the um, what they were considered more liberal tendencies of the Republican Party, um, especially 
in in terms of inclusion and voting. Um, so Alan Shivers was a Redeemer Democrat as well. Um, he also advanced a pretty serious legislative agenda for Texas. He created uh, to administer um, state hospitals and schools. Um, they adopted the Gilmer-Aiken school law, which is basically a kind of modern school system that we know today. Um, created a water group um, to um, sort of check to see if waters were be- water was being used um, efficiently. Um, anti-lynching laws, uh, pay increases for state employees. Um, so there's a lot of legislation in the period of the um, Stevenson and Shivers years that uh, kind of identified the powers and scope of the political authority of the modern lieutenant governor in Texas. Yeah, so we're talking 30s and 40s there just for mm-hmm. for reference. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, okay, I know you've got things lined up. I've got lots of questions. Give us a couple more there, Professor, as we sit here in your your virtual online course. Yeah, exactly. No, I love it, right? Um, Yeah, until about the 1950s, the Senate really didn't do that much um, in terms of leadership. Um, It was said that the Senate calendar was so sparse that the parliamentarian just kept um, the bills that were being filed in a file box at the rostrum. Hmm. We know that's different than today, where uh, obviously they they do a lot. Um, The turkey play between the House and Senate is really interesting, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but that really does, I think, define the the kind of friction of the modern political scene. So the fact that they have such different time horizons and they're elected in, um, in different contexts makes the House and the Senate um, in, in some ways at odds, even if you have shared party unity. Um, the sort of person who I think kind of put the cherry on top of the Sunday in terms of the lieutenant governor's role as a political official as opposed to just somebody who kind of leads the chamber and goes where the body wants it to is Ben Barnes. Um, ben Barnes um, was a Democrat. Um, he was LBJ's protege. Um, he was somebody who worked hard to build consensus, but also with a kind of political outcome in mind. He was the first politician actually in Texas to win more than 2 million votes statewide. Um, he eventually ends up in um, 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 in um, in the aftermath of Sharpstown, which was a kind of stock swap scandal in the 1970s, mm-hmm. as many Democrats did. Um, and so Barnes, um, who's actually from up in your neck of the woods, um, and really, I think, makes it a political position that we know today. Yeah. It was it uh, Comanche County, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's it's, right. I think uh, that's right. Yeah. Where Ben Barnes comes from. So, so whenever you say this, and it seems like to me, in listening to you now, and a couple of these parts of the series leaders who have political outcomes in mind Uh, is that something that lieutenant governors since shivers and stevenson have done have decided that they will have political outcomes they won't just preside over this chamber they'll run the politics of the state or at least try to yeah i mean that's a big factor um one of the reasons i think that there's more political conflict now than there was in the 1970s is because these institutions, these leaders have invested themselves in a kind of specific party outcome, a specific political outcome. So the modern speakership in particular is a good example of this, um, where you've got um, individuals um, raising money like um, 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 Billy Clayton and Gib Lewis, who were speakers in the 1970s, um, 1980s, started raising money for candidates and started to become kind of a political hub of their parties. Um, um, 
Tom Craddock uh, was called an unpaid party consultant uh, during the time before he was speaker. He spent time recruiting candidates and helping with media and mailers and um, generally trying to kind of organize the party around a certain set of political ideas. The goal then and the outcome was that a lot of legislators now owe their success to that person. So the same could be said for Dan Patrick now, right? The campaigning that he's doing is in part designed to be able to, um, you know, gain favor among people who, um, you know, are, are looking to him, his help for re-election or election. So that really drives, I think, a lot of the interchamber actions. But of course, then that has an effect on what happens outside the chamber. Yeah. Okay. Um, give me give me a couple more things on Lieutenant Governor that we ought to know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Lieutenant Governor. Um, you know, the, the role has been fairly minimal over the years, um, uh, and um, you definitely see that role expanding with with uh, Dan Patrick. I would say that Dan Patrick has unified the power of the Lieutenant Governor faster than any Lieutenant Governor in history. There have been some pretty significant lieutenant governors over time. Um, my favorite is um, is um, Bob Bullock, who was a conservative Democrat. He served under Ann Richards and, well, I shouldn't say under, he served with Ann Richards, right, <laughs> given the way the system works, as well as with Governor Bush. Um, he um, was a cantankerous man. He loved to swear and smoke and drink, and he kept a file that was basically a hit list of people <laughs> uh, that, you know, he uh, would use as a hammer against you if you decided you might want to vote against him for something. So um, he was really um, uh, of the kind of sort where it was going to be, you know, his way or the highway. Um, uh, Dan Patrick is to some degree like that, too. I don't think he has a, a file of, you know, things on individuals, but it's definitely the case that that, um, that uh, he, he's able to kind of politically will the chamber to do his bidding. Um, the contrast to that is um, Lieutenant Governor's hobby and Ratliff. Um, um, I mentioned Bill Hobby earlier, who said that the uh, only job of Lieutenant Governor was to call the governor and ask about their health. Uh, and Bill Ratliff, who served very temporarily after Rick Perry was elevated to governor when George Bush was elected president, um, their goal was to kind of what I call the let the Senate work its will model. That is, um, allow for the body to decide kind of what they want and figure out how to help them get there. And that's a very different kind of mindset than the one that, say, um, Bob Bullock or Dan Patrick has. So there are different ways to attack the role of lieutenant governor. Um, ultimately, though, the power is there, and strong lieutenant governors are able to really push their agenda in a way that they can in other states. So uh, lieutenant governor presides over the Senate. Let's switch over to the Senate for just a moment. Uh, yeah. About uh, so, thirty-one senators, and each has roughly eight hundred, just north of eight hundred thousand people mm-hmm. in their districts. Uh, yeah. How does politics play historically in the House versus the Senate? Uh, like, I'll give an mm-hmm. example. House members really get lit up by superintendents and other, you know, public. Mm-hmm. I'll call superintendents public officials. Uh, sheriffs, different entities within counties and cities, but senators oftentimes are immune. You know, a superintendent can say, mm-hmm. "I'm coming after you," and a senator might just roll his eyes. Yeah, yeah. The the design of of the the bicameral system was to allow for the house to be the chamber that was closer to the people. So, as you said, the number of representatives um, is more, and the number of people they represent is in the house is fewer. 
Um, so the goal is that it's supposed to be connected to people. So, yeah, they might get a call from, you know, their local school board member, um, and that's something that's going to be useful and helpful, um, you know, to be able to guide the, their thinking. Um, the Senate maybe has a little bit more immunity. Their time horizons are slightly different in terms of election, right? The senators are elected every four years, House members every two years. So their um, enterprise is affected by that to a significant degree. Um, in terms of the structural differences, too, I think there's some importances, important differences that give um, the, the House a lot, in some ways, a lot less flexibility. Um, so in terms of the way that it's organized, uh, in the House, it's much more top-down. In fact, um, the House organized this process, like I said, around the kind of progressive era, say, 1910, 1920. Speaker Sam Rayburn, who was Speaker of the Texas House before he was Speaker of the U.S. House, um, had always served as one term as Speaker in Texas, but um, was able to kind of sort of understand how to organized the chamber in a way that they didn't in the, in the in the Senate. So not until the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s did you see the Senate really develop rules to give the lieutenant governor the authority to do what the speaker of the house was doing in the uh, in, in the in the other other chamber for the past 30 years. So the organization occurs earlier in the house. Um, you also see um, uh, like I said a lot more top-down power from the speaker to organize committees and a lot earlier. Um, the Senate is much more individualistic than the House. And what I mean by that is that the rules require today that three-fifths of the senators agree to consider legislation. It's called a blocker bill. Unless that blocker bill is removed and agreed to be removed by three-fifths of the senators, then it is in place, and there can be no debate or discussion of that. It used to be two-thirds before Dan Patrick um, helped to mm-hmm. make that change. Um, so the goal 20 is that, votes. That basically, oh, you, you, yes, you exactly. have to have 20 yeah. votes to get something to the floor, and yeah. now they call it the three-fifths rule. Yes. Yeah, and so, I mean, the, so then you can imagine sort of from that how the individual matters more in the Senate than in the House. Now, that's not to say that it's like, it's like a value judgment or something, but your individual vote matters more. Um, nowadays, it doesn't matter as much because the Republicans generally, you know, are able to um, make um, their uh, own agenda and they're able to under, sort of get past that fairly easily. But in the past, it hasn't been the case. And it took a lot to get to that point, that first two thirds and now three fifths. So it wasn't the case that the Senate was as sort of organized efficiently um, it, as it used to be. That's part of the reason I say that um, Dan Patrick is one of the more um, sort of consequential lieutenant governors in history because he's able to sort of run the Senate like the House runs. There's a great story. Um, a young reporter asked um, 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 Speaker or, or Lieutenant Governor Ramsey um, when he was in power when the Senate comes to order. And Ramsey replied without blinking, young man, the Senate of the state of Texas never comes to order. It just meets. <laughs> it's a good way of saying that for a long time, the Senate didn't have that kind of organizational structure, but now they do. He is Branding Rodding House, and he is at the University of Houston. Knows a thing or two, as you can tell. Follow him on Twitter. It's BJ Rodding House on Twitter, right? It's, That's correct, yeah. yeah. BJ R-O-T-T-I-N-G-H-A-U-S. Dr. Rodinghouse, thank you. and look forward to part four coming up, and we'll get into the house more in depth. My pleasure. 
Other Side of Texas brought to you by Lubbock File Room, providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding area since 1992. Do what I did. Call them for a free and hassle-free estimate at 806-744-7666. That's LubbockFileRoom.com, 806-744-7666. If you haven't climbed up to Enchanted Rock, drink a cold shiner down and look.